Go ahead and have a seat. Well, if we've not met, my name is Kyle, and I get to be one of the pastors here. And I'm excited to have the opportunity to preach this morning and to be back in the saddle after our sabbatical and after seeing other people step into their gifting and their calling. And one of the things that I'm hoping and trusting is that as you watched people step into their calling and step out in faith and do a hard thing, that that caused your faith to rise. Because that's what that does, is when we see people step out, it causes our faith to rise. And I'm wondering what gifts are hidden in the room that we don't know about uh, until we give somebody a chance to try. Uh, but I'm so thankful for those eight preachers and their hard work. Um, this weekend, we're starting a new series that I felt like the Lord called me to teach back in January. And so um, this is not cleverness. Uh, this is not insight. This is obedience. Yeah. Um, and so I'm excited to share these stories of something that God did about 50 years ago. In the late 1960s, God was up to something in the San Francisco Bay Area which was the epicenter of the free love and flower power counterculture that was taking America's youth by storm. Now, popular culture has romanticized this season of American life, and in doing so, we miss the hopelessness, desperation, and depravity that the counterculture represented. As America's youth protested the draft and the Vietnam War, as they engaged in risky, often public sex, as they dropped acid at days-long rock concerts, they were kicked out of their homes, they were disowned by their parents, and they were left to beg in the streets. An estimated 75,000 young people descended on the San Francisco Bay Area in the summer of love, 1967. They were looking for freedom. They were looking for spiritual renewal. They hoped to sit at the feet of yogis and Buddhists and cast off the oppressive weight of their parents' straight-laced American Christianity to cast off the morals of the American way. What they found were venereal diseases, rape, crime, homelessness, and starvation. Two years prior to the Summer of Love, in 1965, a philandering, acid-dropping Ted Wise picked up a copy of the New Testament. His wife had become a Christian at a Baptist church nearby, and he didn't want to be a hypocrite. He didn't just want to reject her newfound faith out of hand. And as he picked up the scriptures and read those ancient words, he became convinced that Jesus was God. He said, I found it necessary to cry out to God to save my life in every sense of the word. Jesus knocked me off my metaphysical, let's say rear, but that's not the word he used. Sometime later, Jim Dupe, to whom Ted Wise was sort of a father figure, was smoking weed and listening to Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. While he was high, he was contemplating Ted's radical encounter with God, the God of the universe, and he recalls, I finally got it. I thought to myself, 
maybe there is a God. I hadn't considered that possibility in a number of years when suddenly a peace came over me, my breathing became easier, my chest became lighter, and I said, letting out a sigh, Oh, Father, forgive me. Immediately, the entire weight that was on my chest was gone, and the rush of relief from my heart was one of exaltation. He said, I understood in an instant that God is my Father and I am his child. The joy, the peace, and love that I had on my heart for God and others was just incredible. As Ted Wise and Jim Dupe and their wives and their children came to faith, they couldn't keep the good news of Jesus to themselves. So in the midst of the despair and the depravity that marked the counterculture of the late 1960s, a movement of disciple-making disciples was born. A movement that in the span of just a decade would reshape American Christianity, even to now. Members of that movement were called Jesus Freaks, or more simply, Jesus People. And for the next three weeks, we're going to be considering this moment in American history, in American Christianity, and I want to tell you why. Larry Eskridge has written what is considered the seminal work on the Jesus People movement. It's called God's Forever Family, the Jesus People Movement in America. And let me read you the opening paragraph of his book. He says, by the summer of 1971, a battered American public had been through the social, cultural, and political ringer, enduring a series of revolutions in the sphere, in the span of just a few short years. There had been the civil rights revolution, complete with racist resistance and frustration-driven urban riots across the country, dark murmurings of political revolution as anarchy reigned on the nation's college campuses over the Vietnam War and the draft, the advent of the pill and the sexual revolution, the spread of LSD and the psychedelic re revolution, and the countercultural flower power of the hippie revolution. Now, I read that paragraph sometime this winter when I picked up this book. I read that paragraph and I thought, is this about the early 1970s or about the early 2020s? The Jesus People Movement came about during a time of significant change and unrest in our nation over issues of race, politics, sexuality, and drugs. And here we are yet again in a cultural moment marked by issues of race, politics, sexuality, and drugs. Uh, LSD, if you didn't know this, microdosing LSD is on the rise among white collar professionals. The June 21st, 1971 issue of Time Magazine, I have the cover of it with a quote, that's the cover of Time Magazine from June 21st, 1971. The authors of the story wrote, Jesus is alive and well, and living in the radical spiritual fervor of a growing number of young Americans who have proclaimed an extraordinary religious revolution in his name. Their message, the Bible is true, miracles happen, God really did so love the world that he gave it his only begotten son. They go on to say, it is a startling development for a generation that has been constantly accused of tripping out or copping out with sex, drugs, and violence. 
In the midst of the hopelessness and despair and depravity of the counterculture of the 1960s, the Holy Spirit birthed a movement of radical discipleship to go after a generation the church wasn't going after. That same year in 1971, Billy Graham, Billy Graham hailed the Jesus movement as a brand new spiritual awakening, quote, an impending revival to restore America's spiritual greatness. And America's suit-wearing, hymn-singing, straight-laced Christians just couldn't even. They had prayed for God to bring their prodigal sons and daughters home, and when it happened, they said, not like that. Every September, we begin the ministry year with a vision series. Who are we? Who are we trying to be? What is God saying to us? What are we going to do about it? And this year, our vision series is shaped around a 50-year-old movement of Jesus-loving hippies. And here's why. The conditions that gave birth to the Jesus people movement Racial unrest, political division, sexual liberation, drug culture. These are key themes to our cultural moment. The conditions are right for God to bring about another Jesus people movement. Our vision series is shaped by the Jesus people so we can, in the words of the scriptures, know the signs of the times. Many of us assume that revival, were it to come to America, would begin in Washington or among the powerful. Yet Billy Graham who walked the halls of power, who counseled presidents, located the restoration of America's spiritual greatness, hear me, not among America's elite, but among a group of barefoot, long-haired, draft-dodging, commune-loving hippies who came to faith during an acid trip. That's where Billy Graham said America's renewal and spirit, restoration of spiritual greatness would come from. Our vision series is shaped by the Jesus people so we can repent of our idolatrous hope that politicians can save us and instead align our hearts with God's heart for the last, the least, and the lost. When the Jesus people movement was born, article after article, sermon after sermon was preached about the heresy of these young people who were coming to faith in droves. On Saturday night, someone would walk into a party and he would walk up to people and share the gospel with them and they would put their faith in Jesus. Were they sober? I don't know. But the next morning, because they had just put their faith in Jesus, they would drag their half-drunk, half-stoned butts to church. And when they walked in, people said, you're not welcome here. People went to their pastors and said, we don't want their bare feet on our carpet. Our vision series is shaped by the Jesus people because Generation Z, kids born between 1996 and 2015, are the first post-Christian generation in America. And we, like the conventional church of the late 60s, are woefully unprepared to connect them to the God who loved them first and loved them still. 
The Jesus People Movement gave birth to entire church movements like Calvary Chapel and entire denominations like the Vineyard. It gave birth to a more casual approach to church. If you are wearing jeans at church this morning, it is because of the Jesus People Movement. If you brought coffee into the sanctuary without somebody yelling at you, it is because of the Jesus People Movement. It gave birth to the seeker-sensitive movement that led to the rise of the megachurch. It gave birth to, most significantly, Christian contemporary music. Larry Norman, the second chapter of Acts, Keith Green, Maranatha. We sing the way we sing because of the Jesus People Movement. Our vision, our vision series is shaped by the Jesus People Movement because we began at Regen here with a similar impulse to the Jesus People Movement. We want to do unconventional things to connect with a segment of our population, young and old, that isn't interested in the conventional church. The Jesus people, hear me, the Jesus people were shaped by a radical impulse to do exactly what Jesus told them to do without exception and without delay. Our vision series is shaped by the Jesus people because we I, you, we have forgotten the high value Jesus places on obedience. Not on knowledge, not on risk-taking, not on passion, not on sincerity or authenticity, but obedience. So to that end, since we are preaching, turn with me in your Bibles to one verse. One verse, John chapter 14, verse 15. John chapter 14, verse 15. You don't need context. You don't need background. Because all of that is one of the ways that we get away from doing exactly what Jesus said. And in this moment, all you need to know is what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says... If you love me, obey my commandments. Let's read it again. If you love me, obey my commandments. Let's just sit with that. It doesn't need explanation. It doesn't need unpacked. We don't need to look at the Greek. We don't need to say, well, if you were a first century Greco-Roman, you would have heard this, and I don't need to do all this work to help you hear what they heard, so we know how to live. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. Jesus was so serious about this that he said essentially the same thing in the next chapter. In John 15, verses 9 and 10, he says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Jesus says that the way we express our love for him, Jesus says that the way we express our love for him, the way we dwell in life-giving and abiding relationship with him is obedience. 
Have you all heard of this book called The Five Love Languages? Okay. It's written by, it's published by Moody Publishers. It basically paid for my education. Thank you, Gary Chapman. Um, in it, it talks about there's five ways that we give or receive love, right? Acts of service, uh, gifts, physical touch, quality time, words of affirmation. Now, you may be interested to know what my love language is, and I will tell you what it is. Whatever you have, I love it. You want to give me a gift? Great. You want to tell me some words of affirmation? Can't wait to hear it. You want to give me a hug? Yes. You want to spend time with me? Cannot wait. You want to do something for me? Please. Whatever you got, I will take. Do you know what Jesus' love language is? Jesus' love language is obedience. Jesus' love language is obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, there are a few traps that we fall into, aren't there, with this. We hear Jesus say, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so we fall into this trap where we hear those words and we're like, well, I'll never be able to do that. Right? I'll never be able to, Jesus. I mean, even this week, we have all disobeyed the commands of Jesus. That's why we are here, right? But the trap is that when we realize our sinfulness and our brokenness, we just give up. I'll never attain it, so I'll just give up. Among the theologically minded, we talk about our depravity and our inability to do anything right in God's eyes. And we talk about how Jesus' grace covers us and then it essentially becomes an excuse for not really trying. Now, for the less theologically minded, we use our brokenness and the things that have been done to us and our wounds as reasons to avoid obedience. I just can't. I'm too overwhelmed. I just can't. I'm too stressed. I just can't. That's too traumatizing. Let's not take advantage of Jesus' desire to heal by not pressing in yet. So there's this trap where we don't try, where we recognize our sinfulness and our brokenness and we don't try. The other trap is we read, if you love me, keep my commandments. And we assume that Jesus means we have to earn his love by, obedi by obedience. Right? We assume that our obedience, doing the right things, checking the boxes, somehow will make Jesus love us more. And so suddenly our, our relationship with God is this performative, anxious, controlling, fearful thing. Here's the thing. Jesus is deeply opposed to the ways that we try to earn his affection. Jesus is deeply opposed to the ways that we try to earn his affection. We can't. That's the point. We can't earn it. But Jesus is also opposed to giving up on any effort whatsoever. That's what grace is for. Grace isn't a covering so we can just throw it all away. Grace is an infusion of spiritual power so that we can exercise godly effort to become like Jesus. Dallas Willard says, grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. And let me tell you what the Jesus people got right. They understood that love for Jesus 
is expressed in obedience. Do you know when the Jesus people were getting kicked out of churches because of their bare feet and unshowered bodies, they could not fathom the disobedience that they saw in churches. They could not fathom Jesus told you to do these things. Why aren't you doing them? John Wimber, who started the uh, vineyard movement, became a Christian and was reading the Gospels, right? And, and he's seeing Jesus, he's seeing Jesus, like, cast out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead. And so he goes to somebody in his church, he's a new believer, he goes, so when do we start doing the stuff? And they said, we don't do the stuff. He said, but Jesus said, do the stuff. See, Ted Wise and Jim Duke, this is what they got right. They got right that our love for Jesus is expressed in obedience. And their poor, straight-laced Baptist pastor who risked his career like five dozen times to disciple these guys. He noted that they had, Jim Duke and Ted and these early Jesus people, you know what he said? He said, they have a readiness to do whatever they understand God to be requiring of them that they have a readiness to do anything to do whatever they understood God to be requiring of them in other words for the Jesus people for the Jesus people if Jesus said it the Jesus people did it if Jesus said it the Jesus people did it because they love Jesus not because not because they wanted to earn his affection not because they felt this frantic desire to stay in right relationship, not out of some self-righteous, condescending, aren't I better than everybody else? No, because they love Jesus. And if Jesus said it, they're going to do it. So Jesus said, go and announce to them the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons give as freely as you've received. So this, this, listen to what the Jesus people did. It was interesting because there would be people on drugs, there were, there was like, I remember seeing like three heroin addicts come in. And again, we weren't trained like to do healing ministry or anything. We just started praying over these guys. And I remember two, two of these addicts just boom on the ground. We didn't know what was happening. We kind of had a vague notion that this is just what God did when he showed up. And both of them, just like that, were freed from their addictions from heroin. And one of the guys is a pastor today of, uh, of a church in the area. So there was a lot of that, you know, like just people being set free from drugs, from addictions, in very supernatural ways. And I think part of it was, you know, we were, were simple enough to just go, well, that's just what God does, mm -hmm. right? And we hadn't been trained theologically with a whole bunch of questions around it. It was like, no, this is just what's in the Bible. And so we just kind of expected, you know, those sorts of things um, to, to happen. We just expected those sorts of things to happen. Because Jesus said it would happen. 
So Jesus said, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. Listen to what the Jesus people did. The idea that you share Jesus with people was just like what you do. You just, you know, sometimes even to, to a degree of being obnoxious. I mean, sometimes I look back and go, how did anybody get saved when we were so obnoxious? Um, you know, because you would, like, it would be, if you got around a group of Christians, it was like somebody's going to start talking to, to you about Jesus. But I think one of the things that was different as time went on is it was, it felt organic and natural. It's like, Jesus is just a guy I'm in love with and I'm just going to talk to you about him. So I remember, even when I was in high school, being at parties and there'd be these young men and young women who had started following Jesus and they're involved in young life. And you'd be at a party and they just kind of come up and start talking to you about Jesus. Like, hey, how you doing? You know, are you doing okay? I saw in class the other day, you know, it seemed like you were kind of angry about something. You know, well, can I tell you about Jesus? Because, you know, he loves you even when you're angry. I mean, there were just these conversations, but it wasn't like I have to share with you. It was like, ooh, I get to share with somebody. And These are uh, clips from a conversation I had my, with my friend Mike McCoy. And Mike came to faith through the Jesus People movement. And I had a conversation with him back this spring, and I recorded it. And so we're dropping it in segments on our podcast feed over the next three weeks. Will you hear about his experience of coming to faith through the Jesus People movement, how he was discipled, some really wild stories of Holy Spirit's power, um, and really the lasting legacy of the Jesus People movement going forward. But Mike said something really important in that clip, didn't he? Jesus was just, just a guy that I was in love with, so we just wanted to talk about him. Jesus is just a guy that I was in love with, so I just had to tell other people about him. I know what you love. I know what you love because you tell me what you love. I know you love football because you wear the jerseys and tell me about the game and ask me for some reason about the scores as if I would know because you miss church some weeks to go to a game. You miss church some weeks because your kids are in sports. I know you love sports. I, I know the shows you watch because you tell me about them. Have you watched Only Murders in the Building? Have you watched The West Wing? I know your political opinions. I know the politicians you love and the ones you don't love. We share the books we read and the restaurants we love and the places we love to visit and we gush about our littles and the new thing that they do and we're eager to share the accomplishments of our children and grandchildren with others because we love them. But then we start talking to other people, we start talking about talking about Jesus and we shrivel up like a raisin. We get awkward because our love for other things 
that we so freely express to others somehow gets weird. We're not too busy to love football, but somehow we're too busy to love Jesus. We're not shy about our political opinions, but we're somehow shy about our love for Jesus, which, by the way, has a danger of leading people to believe, if they know you're a Christian, that your political views are Jesus's political views, and I can assure you they are not. Jesus says his love language is our obedience, and he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Are you telling people about this person that you love? When something comes up in conversation, can you say in 15 seconds or less, yeah, I used to be really stuck in anxiety, but walking with Jesus these years have made it better. Can you say to your kids, the most important thing about us is our love for Jesus. Will they know you're lying because of how you spend your time? Are we able to talk about Jesus as someone that we just love? Keith Green wrote the song, There is a Redeemer. Keith Green came to faith through the Jesus People movement and began writing and became publicly known sort of after the Jesus People movement had officially ended, which depending on who you ask was the middle of the 1970s. Keith Green has a song that's called Jesus Commands Us to Go. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the verse. Just listen to the verse. This is the chorus. The, ver the chorus is Jesus commands us to go, but we go the other way. So he carries the burden alone while his children are busy at play. Let me read you the verse. Oh, how God calls as he stalls the great judgment of fire. So he can gain his greatest desire. Because he knows that the souls of the lost can only be reached through us. We're his hands and his feet. Jesus commands us to go. But we go the other way, so he carries the burden alone while his children are busy at play. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Amen.